1: You're listening to How Magicians Think, I'm your host, Joshua Jay, and today's episode is called The Smartest Magician Alive. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua Jay, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. A lot of people ask me as a magician if I'm ever fooled by a magic trick, and the answer is yes. And the last time that I was fooled... Really badly was in Penn and Teller's show with one of my favorite tricks. And the idea of the trick is this Teller hides behind a set piece while Penn goes into the audience to get a volunteer to come up. And the audience is in on this idea that Teller is going to be pulling the strings, literally, on a trick for one. The whole trick the audience is in on, but they're going to blow away this one audience member. So Penn goes in the audience and gets a spectator. And the night that I saw the show, it was like this NASCAR guy as a guy in a hat and kind of had a mullet. And he comes on stage and he talks with an accent. And Penn says, hi, where are you from? And all this stuff. Penn sits across from this audience volunteer while Teller is behind this little set piece, making all sorts of little close-up magic tricks happen. And it's really funny. It's like a piece that's played for comedy. And the tricks get more and more absurd, and the guy watching is more and more amazed because the tablecloth on the table changes color, and he causes the stuff to levitate off the table the teller's secretly pulling the strings on. And then, for the last trick of the segment, Penn stands up, looks at the assistant, and the volunteer has become teller and teller takes off the hat and wig and he is the audience volunteer it truly took my breath away i was totally fooled now if you ask most magicians what their favorite trick is they might say a different pen and teller trick they would say a trick with the red ball here's what mike Caveney and then jamie and swiss have to say about one of his signature tricks the red ball
2: When I went to their show and Teller did the red ball, his floating ball, after the show, I said, Teller, I have no idea how that trick works. And he says, of course you know how it works. It's right out of the book, David P. Abbott's floating ball. So I came home. I reread David P. Abbott's floating ball. I went to see Teller again. I saw the red ball again. And after the show, I said, Teller, I read the book again. I have no idea how the red ball works. And the point is, is that Teller takes an existing trick, in this case, David P. Abbott's classic trick that's been around for 100 years, and he didn't just do it as written. He worked on it for years, years, and with some help from people like Johnny Thompson, turned it into this trick that I didn't recognize as David P. Abbott's trick, and he just fooled the pants off me with it and I could watch that trick a hundred times in a row. He astonishes me. Penn always says that Teller spends all his life poring through old magic books.
3: But in between either reviving classics in completely original ways, Teller is one of those rare magicians who creates effects. One of the very first conversations we had was about Abbott who invented the floating ball. And Teller is a deep student of that work And eventually, after decades of work, he comes up with a version of the floating ball that is utterly mystifying, utterly astonishing, and has a completely different approach than
1: anyone else has ever done. And that's just one example. And in this episode, I talk with Teller, widely regarded as one of the greatest living magicians, a true inspiration.
3: When I saw the Penn and Teller show for the first time, right after it opened off-Broadway in 1985, I, I was gobsmacked. And for two weeks, I couldn't think about anything else. For two weeks, I was getting up every day and making notes and trying to extract lessons because I realized pretty quickly that every single routine on stage was about something, was about some kind of idea. Some of those routines were only about character and the intersection of those two unusual extraordinary characters but many other the pieces were about even greater ideas higher higher concept ideas and i'd never seen a magic show like that in my life and neither had anyone else because their producers forbade them from using what they called the m-word which was magic and that left the new york press And the theater, the legit theater press, which never treated magic shows seriously, asking them over and over again, what is it that you do? And I remember sitting and looking at the television going, it's a magic show. But it's the smartest magic show we've ever seen. But because it was so smart, they'd never seen that before. So they couldn't believe it was a magic show. And eventually when they got the, I think it was the Tony, and it said right on the statuette, to Penn and Teller for whatever it is that they do. So there are many reasons why Penn and Teller have had such a profound impact. And one of those reasons is that Teller is an extraordinarily creative and unique performer and creator. Because magic is very much like the great American songbook. It really is an interpretive art. That's the great value of Penn and Teller's Fool Us, because every time Penn speaks to those acts, he's really doing art appreciation for the public and for magic fans and explaining that magic is an interpretive art.
1: And I'll speak with the usually silent half of Penn & Teller about all things magic. Can you talk a little bit about your process? And you can do that through the prism of maybe something you're working on or something you worked on and, and you thought went particularly well.
4: We were driving 1976 to the Minnesota Renaissance Festival and we said, wouldn't it be great if you could do a trick in which the audience had a choice whether they knew how it was done or didn't know how it was done, in which they could either keep their eyes closed at a key moment or keep their eyes open at a key moment. And I don't remember when the the discussion actually happened, but we came back to that with one or the other of us, and I don't I can never tell where the which where the idea is coming from. one or the other of us said, Remember Houdini doing escapes. He would always do them in a closed cabinet. What if you had a closed cabinet type escape that uh, could be seen and be interesting because most closed cabinet escapes you don't see because they're really dull and stupid. It could be really interesting. What if we did one of those and gave the audience a chance to keep their eyes open or to keep their eyes closed? So it, it, it is almost always true that there is not one idea but there's, there's a meeting of several different ideas coming from different directions. And where they come from, sometimes Penn will come to me and say, I just found this trick that's really good, but I don't have an idea for it, or I'll come to him with the same sort of thing, uh, or we'll make some kind of discovery. I can tell you that the only thing that they have in common is it takes a lot of time and thought and work to, to do it and also to do it very consistently especially if you're doing something metaphorical. You need the metaphor to be crystal clear and accurate. Uh, you know, you can't be sloppy about a metaphor in magic pattern, or the magic of it goes away, because the magic of it is that suddenly things that were once just words are now things. So
1: when I think about this through the prism of our listeners, who won't be magicians, but there'll be people interested in this craft, interested in how they can take techniques to their line of work, two things bubble up to the surface. One is, have you learned anything about collaborating? I mean, it's not just pen you collaborate with. I know you've worked with other people. You've guest starred in all sorts of, of things. Do you have any insight into that? And have you learned anything about your own creative process that would help you, say, in 2021, putting a new trick in your show that you didn't know in 1976?
4: I love working with Penn because it's such, always such a, an adventure because we pull each other this way and that. And I think that's a huge benefit that we have because there are many people who do not work in a partnered situation, and they have only themselves to bounce off of. Or other people who are functioning like editors, but not really like co-collaborators. One of the things that's just been so fun is learning the art of how to proceed as a partnership to, you know, to allow the disagreements and to you kind of harden yourself to the other person saying, you know what, that's old hat, or we did something too much like that before. You just get you get used to that and relax. I'll tell you, it is not one of those situations where every idea is oh so welcome, you know, like they tell you to do in, in creativity classes. That, that's a bullshit. It's a struggle. So what? It's always a struggle. What I did not know in 1976 was how much the power of the trick matters. In 1976, I I knew that we were doing tricks and I knew that the comedy was important. I didn't really, I think, have the deep intellectual conviction that fooling with magic was as deep and important a part of the process as I now do. Because... Magic deals with the fundamental question, what's real? The question you always have to answer before you enter any situation is, what's really going on here? You know, you step off the curb without looking for the bus, you die, you pick the wrong doctor, and he turns out to be a faith healer. So that very fundamental question, what is real, is at the core of magic. And it's it's so the, the strength of the trick is a very important part of that. A great deal of the time when Penn and I do a work session, what it consists of, we go and we sit down and we have coffee. We just talk about stuff. And gradually, out of that conversation, things that have been in the backs of our minds will emerge and they'll turn into things, or one of us will pull out a list and say, you know, I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking about this. Now, you, as a Hitchcock fan, know how Hitchcock worked with writers. And what one of the ways Hitchcock worked with writers, which drove the writers crazy was he'd have them in, and they'd have, you know, a snack, they'd have an afternoon tea, they'd talk about everything in the world, and then, like, after an hour, they'd get around to talking about the movie. And I don't think that was random or stupid or just self-indulgent on Hitchcock's part. I think he understood something about collaboration that is really, really important.
1: I want to come back to what you said, because you said something very profound when you said that in 1976 you weren't sure that you had an appreciation for... The fooling aspect, the the absolute importance of having really stunning magic. And I think, personally, that that comes from the craft leaders. Like, Di Vernon used to say, any trick can be a miracle if it's presented in the right way. And many comedy magicians for years have sort of said, the material doesn't matter, it's the laugh, it's the situation, it's the premise. And so, at least I was brought up thinking that. And you're right. I mean, I, I came to it in my own way. But if magic is not strong, it can be many things. It can be meaningful. It can be personal. It can be autobiographical. But if the trick is only so-so, the overall impact is is compromised. And I see that over and over in your work, that these are great tricks. The starting point of everything I see you guys do is so good before you add the humor and the premise and and... The accoutrement.
4: Well, you know, and it doesn't go in in that recipe sort of way. It all, it all comes in together. Magic, I think, is a fundamentally intellectual art form that we then have learned to present as drama. But at its root, it has got to look like an impossibility. You know, Aristotle, Aristotle described drama as the imitation of action in the form of action, right? Because it's you're doing a play in which you are imitating action by acting it out. In magic, you are doing an imitation of impossible action in the form of action. But unlike theater, what you're doing, in order for it to have that deep, ironic, penetrative quality to it, it has to look like real. It has to actually look like it's actually happening. The audience knows it's not. This is one of the reasons that Penn and I are so fond of using the word trick, right? Because magicians talk about illusions, but illusions... Uh, illusions are not what we're looking at. Illusions, you can sit back and just wash over you, right? You can go to the movies. Something looks like it's there on screen. You know, it's really a digital effect. You just accept it. It just washes over you. It's fine. Magic is not that kind of thing. Magic is not a comfortable art form. It is not an art form that you sit back and let wash over you. It's a, it's an art form that you must engage with, which is one of the reasons it's so incredibly strong and universal. Because it's it's irritating. It's a it's a troubling, irksome art form. Because what you think you're good at, which is recognizing reality, is being challenged, and that just makes it incredibly exciting. Really, roller coaster exciting.
1: Are you constantly? reflecting back on these big concepts to put them into the particular? Or do you just have those in the back of your mind so much that you're always just working the problem?
4: I'm, I'm living in the world. You know, I'm just living, I'm living in the world of the, of the process of making these things. And, you know, it's sort of like, am I thirsty now? Yes, I'm thirsty now. Does that trick need to look better? Yes, it does. It's, it's almost a physical thing of just saying, no, 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 no. It needs this, you know. I don't refer to maxims.
1: When you get home after working with Pan and your team all day, if you have some great breakthrough and insight, what happens? Does it stay till the next day or do you immediately start scribbling it down? Do you get on the phone? I mean, how do you separate those things?
4: If we're in the middle of a thought and have to stop and another thought occurs, chances are one or the other of us will immediately email the other guy and say, Ooh, what about this? It's sometimes nice to hold off a little while, to you give yourself a chance to digest and say, is that really good or is that just, you know, I, I, do I just think I'm a smart guy right now? We uh, did a movie many years ago with the great director, Arthur Penn. It's called Penn and Teller Get Killed. And Arthur said to me, one of the differences between Penn and me that's very strong is that Penn is always focused heavily on the verbal content. And getting that verbal content right is right at the top of his list. And my focus tends to be the visual content and getting the visual content at at the top of the list. And it used to be, when we were working on something, Penn would be working on the verbal part of it. I'd be working on the visual part of it. And as he's working on the verbal part of it, I would go, oh yeah, but Penn, this would be so much better if you did it from over there. You know, or if you did it seated or you did it this way or that way. And it completely broke up his concentration. So, you know, one of the things about collaboration that you do learn is when to shut up you know when to just let the other person work for a while and honestly that is a very useful trick if you've got a good collaborator you really can say, you take it for a while and just stand back. This worked very well on my productions of The Tempest and Macbeth and, and Play Dead, uh, the several plays that I did, where you just, at times, you have to say, okay, I think I really know what should go on here, but let the other person unfold the thought fully because they might be right.
1: That's really insightful. By the way, as Teller is talking about this movie, I am recording from my childhood bedroom as I visit my parents, and I've got a poster of the movie Penn and Teller Get Killed. And I think what most people miss about that whole project that I think is so great is the subtitle of What More Do You Want? When do you know when it's time to quit on an idea? When do you know that after five hours, ten hours, a hundred hours, that, you know what, Penn? I don't think this is ever going to be great. Or do you never quit on an idea? And before you answer just to give some perspective, because everybody approaches this differently. I asked David Copperfield this question and his response for his own work was that he essentially never quits an idea. He will constantly work on something and he won't quit it until it's, in his mind, able to go. And that was very contrary to my experience with my own work. So I'm very curious to know where you stand on this.
4: I, I have been taught by the world that there is a point when sometimes something just can't work. The specific example is we were doing a a television special that was kind of a flop and a disaster, which by the way, I I recommend to everybody somewhere very early in your your career, have the biggest possible disaster so that you know what it means to have that level of disaster. But we did a show called uh, Penn & Teller Off the Deep End, which was shot in the Bahamas. And one of the things we had in mind for this, and I, think it's, I think it's a beautiful one, was to shoot a stream of water from a fire hose and tightrope walk on it. And we actually, with the help of the great John Gon in LA, worked out a way to do it. And then storms and horrible things happened to us in the Bahamas, we never got to shoot it in the Bahamas. We came back and we said, couldn't we make that a good trick for the stage? Couldn't we do that on stage? So we built an enormous clear tank. It was very difficult to control the water. So we hired the company that designs the fountains for the Bellagio Hotel to teach us about water control. And we basically put about two years and something like $60,000 into it. And then found in the end that there was no way to do it because no matter what, if it was going to look good, the water had to splash. The water had the splash. It was on the stage. It was on the audience. It was impossible. And very, with very great regret, we rather slowly said to one another, I think we should just stop this now <laughs> because this is a beautiful but not good idea. You have, have the ideas and you go, well, that one looks promising. And then you, you nurture that one for a while and you see how far that can, can go. We have a long list of things we kind of like to do that we go back to from time to time, and once in a while, one of them resurfaces. But it's a daily adventure. You're wandering through the woods looking for game.
1: Was the pandemic in some weird, perverse way comforting to you to have time off, or did you really hate being grounded in your house?
4: It was initially shocking. We were the first show in Vegas to close. We had just finished shooting a season of Fool Us, during which nobody got sick. Goodness gracious, I'm happy about that. And we had a Friday night show, and Penn had just been reading the New York Times articles about what was going on in Italy and how people were dying. He and I had a correspondence and, and a phone conversation and with our management as well. And we said, if we bring a thousand people into the theater tonight, someone is going to get sick and die. And so at five o'clock in the afternoon, we phoned the box office, which is a horrible thing to do to to a box office. But we said, we really don't think we should do the show tonight because it's going to be bad for the public. You know, it won't be very bad for us because we'll be, you know, separated on stage. It's gonna be bad for the public. And that's not a moral thing for us to do. So we closed down and we had, like you, like everybody, we had no idea, first of all, whether there would ever be live theater again. And then we just started to say, okay, What can we do now? And then we started to do a lot of Zoom sessions together and phone calls together. And then, bless their hearts, our our Fool Us producers said, we think we can shoot two TV specials, a TV special from your your homes individually and meld it all together through the magic of Zoom and, and video. And we said, okay. And so we collaborated on the construction of that show entirely over Zoom. We did not see each other. We were not in the same room for either of those two shows, but our ingenious producers helped weave it all together into a very nice little uh, home special called The Penn & Teller Try This at Home and a second version of that. It was interesting to learn that new form and to think about that new form. And then eventually, once good testing got around, And I had been tested and tested, and we were sure that I was safe to come to Penn's house, and he to my house. Then he and I began to work together in person. And that was very refreshing. But it was also wacky, right? It was really like being back in the Datsun 210 that we drove to Minneapolis in in 1976. Just the two of us in a car. We didn't have our whole crew there. We didn't have our whole theater there. It's just the two of us with a pot of tea, which and bought a new teapot for the purpose. And we just spent many, many, many hours basically writing what we thought would be a new season of fullness.
1: Did that inspire you to work in a different way or to work on things that maybe you wouldn't have taken on
4: otherwise? It sort of stripped away years of success and said, we're just two guys in a room. And uh, that feeling was really nice. I mean, it was it was really it was like rediscovering an old friend. I hadn't been in a station wagon, uh, driving 500 miles with Penn for decades and decades, and suddenly I was again. Well, I think we both came out of it a little sweet and soft hearted from that, and we also, you know, we we were able to get. Penn's daughter moxie into one of the things that we did the, you know this whole thing became like the family thing again i think we've benefited tremendously from that so in any life experience you know th- there's a good chance that you can make use of the downtime
1: Segwaying then into the current show because you're back performing and from what uh, you told me the last time we were together there's a lot of new material in the show
4: now, at the beginning of the show right now, Penn tells the story of what Piff the Magic Dragon, a great Las Vegas performer, told us. He, he started in much earlier than we did, working under much more strict COVID conditions. And he said, oh man, when you come back, you will find yourself so disoriented. You, you will have forgotten how to be with an audience. Just bring out the things that you really know how to do and do them. So our current show has eight absolutely new bits in it. We had to take one of them out for a couple of weeks and it'll probably go back in this week because something about it didn't fit right, didn't feel right. But having a large repertoire allowed us to switch something in temporarily. You know, the first obligation is always give the audience a perfectly good show. Second obligation is always give them the newest and best stuff you can. But if something is not firing properly, you need to fix it before you put it back in.
1: You're always so candid about your own work and how you want to improve it. And...
4: Well, what did Hitchcock do after he had, what was it, I guess, The Wrong Man or something like that? One of his less successful movies. He, he said, well, when you're in those situations, run for cover. So run for cover for him was doing Dial-In for Murder, which turns out to be a marvelous movie. I mean, it, he just filmed the stage play, but geez, it's damn good.
1: Well, and, and you talk about somebody who was able to criticize their own work. I mean, in Hitchcock Truffaut, my biggest takeaway from that book is that here's a guy who has so many masterpieces so many perfect films so many films that were flawed but wonderful and then lots of purely entertaining films he found fault with something about everyone Truffaut would bring up Vertigo and he'd go, well, but the problem was or what I really wanted to do but I couldn't do what I mean, he was always a perfectionist and I see that in the work that you two do as well let's close a little bit with some Fool Us talk. Fool Us just completed its eighth season and it requires you to perform in every episode. Is that something that worries you or does the material for that feed into the live show or is it a different animal altogether? What's the workflow that occurs there?
4: The preparation of a Fool Us show is different under different circumstances. During the pandemic, we had no live show to use as a laboratory. Normally for Fool Us, we will develop the material, put it into the live show, and ripen it there insofar as we have time. It won't be as ripe as it will be in two years, but it will be two months ripe instead of raw off the page. During the pandemic, we had none of that luxury. So uh, we just, we had the guests. We had friends watch the stuff. There was a tricky time. I should not neglect the fact that the producers on Fool Us, Andrew Golder and and Peter Golden, are really good. And Lincoln Hyatt, who has a very beautiful visual mind, and all of the the people there are most of the show. Because most of the show is the performances of our guests. And these guys beat their brains out to get the best people on earth. And I'll tell you, it really has paid off. And and the more we do Fool Us and the more magicians realize that no matter what, if they get on the show, they've won. Because on, on Fool Us, everybody looks as good as they could ever possibly look on TV. On what other television show do you get a producer coming in and working with you beat by beat through the piece and say, you know what, this is not quite deceptive or we could do this, or here's a good joke to put in there. I mean, uh, we do a really good job of making sure people can do their very best. That is the fundamental piece of the show. We're just the dessert, but the meal is produced by our wonderful producers.
1: Well, it's a kind way of putting it, but you're much more than the dessert in the show. Has watching magic so frequently and so analytically given you insight? I mean, I can tell you that I was asked to judge a magic competition, FISM. This is the sort of the Olympics of magic, and I'd never done anything like that. I'm, I'm not really much for magic competitions, typically. But because I had never done it, I decided to say yes, and I got to watch 50 acts that people spent years of their lives distilling down to eight-minute beats. And contrasting one to another, contrasting within each act things that were great and not so great was such a learning lesson for me in how to observe and appreciate and interpret magic. Do you experience any of that when you're watching these
4: acts? I do a lot of appreciating. When I see something as well executed as people execute, it brings tears to my eyes. I mean, it's really, it is a very beautiful thing because I know how hard it is because they're, they're trying to make the impossible seem possible. One of the things that made us like the idea of Fool Us, we created the idea, That that was not created by the producers. We created that idea. And what it was was essentially a rebellion against talent shows. It was a rebellion against uh, things like America's Got Talent. Now, in America's Got Talent, you have four personalities, but who have really no expertise, saying, I like this, I don't like this. Oh, isn't she cute? They have no criterion on which to make a judgment. So I feel like most talent competitions suffer from that problem. So what Fool Us did was Fool Us gave us a concrete criterion on which to judge an act. The concrete criterion is, did it fool us or not? That is an objective criterion. So the judgment part becomes very black and white. I mean, it's sometimes complex, but it is a very concrete thing. And that gives us leave to just appreciate all the good stuff that people bring us.
1: Here you are. You've achieved much. You are very comfortable in your career, I, I know. But yet you are devising new material. You are back performing nightly in Las Vegas. You are actively a part of, of a successful TV show. What is it that is most exciting to you about getting up in the morning? And what is it that, that's driving you to constantly excel?
4: When I was in high school, I had a mentor who was my high school drama coach. He had been through psychoanalysis and, you know, we were talking about my various habits and things. And I said, well, what about magic? Where do you think magic comes from with me? And he said, I think with you, magic is psychological bedrock. You can't go any deeper. That fascination is constant. It is constant. There's something about what happens when my brain clicks in with the idea of magic, the idea that things don't need to be what they seem to be, that uh, I find endlessly fascinating, endlessly drawing me forward. I can't begin to know why. You know, there's probably some deep personal problem, but it certainly uh, doesn't feel like a problem to me.
1: This has been wonderful. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, tell her. That's it for this episode of How Magicians Think. In the next episode, we answer this question, which I think is something on nearly everybody's mind when it comes to magicians. Was Houdini as great as everyone says? Some of the people think he was the greatest magician who ever lived. Some of the people think he was just a good marketer and he was a terrible magician. I'll have two Houdini scholars duke it out on the show, one arguing pro, one arguing con. I'll tell you some Houdini stories, and we're going to get to the bottom of the myth and magic Of Harry Houdini. See you on the next episode of How Magicians Think. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J and this is How Magicians Think. Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustad, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J., Audio Up in house production by Jordana Glick franzheim and Nate Glassman Hughes. Edited by Kerry Caulfield Eric. Sound design and mix by Kerry Caulfield Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.